0: Welcome to What Were You Thinking? I'm Laura Round and this podcast is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas break and are coping during yet another lockdown but I've got some wonderful guests lined up for you this year and my first guest is Alice Albright, CEO of Global Partnership for Education. Prior to joining GPE, Alice worked for Gavi and served in the Obama administration, which of course we cover in the episode. And you might have guessed this already, but she is the daughter of Secretary Madeleine Albright. Alice shares about her mother's and father's influence in growing up and throughout her life. GPE is a shared commitment to ending the world's learning crisis. It is the only global partnership and fund dedicated entirely to helping children in lower-income countries get a quality education, so they can unlock their potential and contribute to building a better world. GPE mobilises partners and funds to help 76 partner countries transform their education system and deliver quality learning to more girls and boys, especially those who are marginalised by poverty, gender, disability or displacement. GPE is currently calling on world leaders to raise your hand and pledge at least $5 billion for the next five years to help GPE transform education in up to 87 countries, which are home to more than 1 billion children. Over the next five years, this funding will help ensure that 175 million children can learn and enroll 88 million more children in school. In the longer term, this investment could add $164 billion to economies in the developing world, lift 18 million people out of poverty, and protect 2 million girls from early marriage. I think the work GPE is doing is phenomenal, and I'm really proud to be one of their UK champions. Alice, thank you so much for coming on to What Were You Thinking? Uh, It is an absolute honour. Because I know your the work you have done throughout your career is incredible. And especially in your role as CEO for Global Partnership for Education in particular, it's really interesting. And of course, close to my heart, I'm very pleased to be a UK champion for, for the cause, which is uh, ahead of the replenishment next year, which is very important. But also, your mother is, of course, a striking figure. And what I ask, you know, what we try and find out of his podcast is you know, the, the, the influences in your life. And your mother has been a role model to so many women and men around the world. Uh, so I can only imagine <laughs> what a role model she must have been for you. But just to give you an example, I mean, my mother told me from a very young age, the famous quote that, you know, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. And that really stuck with me. And I think of it very often. And it's something I really try and live by. So it's really interesting to hear, you know, what what influence your mum had on, on, on your life and, and career.
1: Well, Laura, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. Uh, and, you know, we also are delighted um, that you are working with us as one of our UK champions. Um, so this is really a very special opportunity uh, for me. We haven't done... Uh, a ton of podcasts So in some ways I'm a a podcast neophyte but uh, it's wonderful to get to get to be with you. Um, So I've had, I've been incredibly fortunate to have uh, two parents who are incredible role models uh, for me, both my mom and my dad. Uh, I'll start out by telling you about my mom. Um, So mom is, uh, mom has been a refugee twice uh, in her life, uh, she started out very young, uh, two age two or three, escaping literally escaping from the Nazis uh, out of uh, what was uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, and uh, spent World War II in the Blitz, uh, living in London under a green uh, bomb sheltered table uh, in on Kensington Park Road uh, before it was swishy, um, with uh, my. Uh, two grandparents. My grandfather was uh, part of the Czech government in exile. Uh, and then uh, she escaped a second time uh, from uh, from the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, when the communists took over. So she is a twice refugee. Uh, and uh, 26 members of her family died in the Holocaust. And uh, they wound up in the United States. And uh, thanks to the uh, the graciousness of both the UN and the U.S. government at the time—they were given asylum—and uh, and she has never forgotten her uh, her gratitude to the United States uh, for taking them in uh, after twice being refugees, and they made a life in the United States, and. know even though she uh, then of course as we know you know became uh, the 61st Secretary of State and the first woman uh, to occupy that job she to this day never forgets her gratitude uh, to the United States Uh, and this is something very relevant to my uh, current work the role that being able to get an excellent education uh, when she arrived in the United States, played uh, in her life. She went She went to great schools in Denver where they settled, then went to Wellesley, then went to Columbia, um, and settled in very well uh, due to the graciousness of the United States and due to the ability to get a great education. My grandfather also then started a graduate school at the University of Denver, uh, which my sisters and I called Bumpa's School of Foreign Service because that's what we called uh, my grandfather was Bumpa. Um, So she is a fantastic role model, but she's also, uh, to my sisters and myself, been, you know, one of our best friends, um, but also a fantastic role model about you can be a professional and be a mom at the same time. And uh, when she was at the State Department, uh, for example, and she had done this in her previous jobs, uh, she asked the switchboard of the State Department, she said, if the children ever call, put them through. Uh, and the grandchildren. I, I, I had the first grandchild. Um, so if any of them call, put them through, um, because she made sure that we knew that uh, we could always get her if we needed her. Um, and so she never, ever, ever has forgot that she was a mom, and she still doesn't ever forget. She calls me every night still <laughs> to find out wow. uh, if we're okay. Still, she calls me every night at about um, six <laughs> fifteen, and we That's talk. That's remarkable. Um, and then my dad, of course, uh, was, is also a remarkable person. He's also uh, about 83 and a half years old. Um, he is a, a fighter at heart and uh, an adventurer uh, and a journalist, uh, a very uh, well-regarded journalist. Uh, he's done crazy things like uh, ro- he rode with the Afghan Mujahideen for six weeks uh, on the back of a horse or a camel uh, to see what the war was really like. Uh, against, uh, I think it was the Soviets at the time. Uh, He was the lead pool reporter in the Gulf, um, in Desert Storm, uh, representing all the other reporters. Um, At the moment, he is spending six days a week and 12 hours a day contact tracing uh, people who have COVID out in Wyoming where he lives, uh, because he's quite worried about the health situation out there. Um, He's written a number of books um, and uh, he still can hike and ski better than I can, uh, and I'm not that bad. Um, and so he's a fighter. He's incredibly courageous. And uh, I think when I think about both of them, what lessons do they teach uh, my two sisters and myself? And um, the things that come to mind are uh, hard work, uh, an utter regard for ethics. I'm an ethics nut as a result of uh, them. Utter uh, Utter gratitude. Um, And never forget the incredibly privileged position that you're in and that uh, you've grown up with. And uh, as a result of that, you have an obligation to help other people, no matter what. Um, And I take that uh, very, very seriously. And it's something that I deeply believe in. It's not been anything that's ever been imposed upon me. Um, And my two sisters do too. Uh, And um, so they're incredible people.
0: Incredible parents and and an incredible story. um And I I didn't realise that about your mother in um, her very very early early years. And in fact Kensington Park Road is it's just around the corner from where I am right now, and it's actually in in the ward I represent. So that's quite a special um, thing. And actually m- my father lived through that in London at the same time. I have a oh. quite an older father. <laughs> That's uh, that is fascinating, and it's and it's really heartwarming to hear. And actually, one of the things I was reflecting on ahead of this call was how remarkable it is. Of course, your mother was a trailblazer in, in her generation in that time, which was wasn't easy uh, for women, and to have and three daughters who all gone off to do incredible things you know the role of a man in that household and family is incredibly important and so that is that is very special to to hear and in particular one of the things i've heard you talk about previously is in, in i think your uh, well possibly in your role now as well but as a as a boss or as an employer making sure that employees feel that they can balance their working life with their responsibilities as a parent and I know you mentioned it goes for women but also for the men uh, in their with their father duties and I found that really really striking and I just I'd love for you to expand a bit more on on that.
1: Well uh, you, you've gotten me on a topic that I could now spend uh, the rest of our time together on so I'll have to discipline myself a little <laughs> bit but um, I, I always uh, and this, this is very much thanks to uh, what my parents uh, taught us. Um, But I've always strongly believed that uh, professionals, be it men or women, um, can properly undertake their professional responsibilities and be a parent and a good parent uh, and be as involved in their children's lives as they want at the same time. And that forcing people to choose between one or the other um, is is really unnecessary and really um, heartless um, and it doesn't contribute to uh, a happy working place. Um, so I have always told uh, um, my colleagues um, that uh, they absolutely are free to go to the parent teachers conference, the sports games, you know the holiday play, um, stay home with their kid if they're sick Um, No matter what, Uh, and with, you know, cell phones and every device in front of us. um, We can always get a hold of people if we need them, but they shouldn't have to choose between their work responsibilities and their parenting responsibilities. Um, And I always thought that I was just assumed when I was working. Um, And I, you know, I started, I think I had my first son right before I moved to London, we lived in London for about six or seven years. Um, I had my second son in London, um, and uh, I just assumed that, you know, if I had a, an outside thing to go to that was related to the kids, the boys, I was just going to go, and <laughs> it was somebody else's problem if they weren't going to be happy with it, and I said, here's my phone, and you can always call me, and uh, and uh, that's what I think to this day, um, and uh, and it's very important for a workplace in my mind. Um, and I also think, and this gets a little bit to some of the particular challenges that that women face is I think women have a moment in their life where they sort of think, okay, I can kind of be a mom or I can stay being a professional. And it's a very, very, it's a false choice. And uh, what I often do with women uh, who are about to have their um, first kid um, is I sort of bring them aside, pull them aside for what I call the working mommy pep talk, and uh, and I say, look, you know, here's what here's what's going to happen. You know, you're going to feel guilty, you're going to feel sad the first day you come back. Don't be hard on yourself. Let's work through this and get you to a point where you can manage, you know, both sets of responsibilities. Um, So, I feel very strongly about this, and uh, I really would like people uh, who work, you know, men, you know, moms and dads who work uh, at GPE to feel completely at ease uh, to take care of their responsibilities. I mean, off, you know, at the end of the day, we're an organization about children. Um, So, how can we look at parents and say, we're going to make you feel guilty for wanting to take care of your own children? so, and it's, it's become a particular challenge lately because with COVID, a lot of people are um, doing homeschooling. So I've tried to yeah. be very, you know, flexible and say, look, you got to do what you got to do. And, you know, we're going to work around it.
0: Yeah. On the whole, there's a different story depending on in, in the developed world and the developing countries, but we've come a long way in overcoming gender discrimination. However, there's still... Um, there's a lot to be done and in particular when looking at women in leadership roles even in developed countries there's um there's not as much progress as you um as some of the rhetoric would make you perhaps think and um i wondered what your thoughts are on on why that is and what 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 needs to you know what do we need to do
1: we have made progress and we haven't made progress so I think both are true. I think if you look at you know, some of the statistics, um, you know, yes, there's more gender parity in the early years of school. You know, yes, there's uh, more women entering the workforce. Uh, you know, yes, there's more women graduating from university, depending on what country you're looking at uh, and so forth. If you scratch below the surface, uh, women still earn uh, I think the figure is about 75, 76, 77 cents on the dollar for whatever ma- every man earns. And I don't know, I'm sure that number breaks down slightly differently mm-hmm. uh, country to country. Uh, depending on what country you're looking at, um, there are still uh, in many countries, the majority of parliamentarians and you know people in that form of role tend to be men. Uh, there are still um, uh, very few women who have been heads of state Uh, One of the things that's been a great, great joy for us at GPE is getting to work with Julia Gillard, who is, you know, just, uh, you know, unbelievable. And it's been a just a tremendous uh, pleasure to get to work with her. She's become a very good friend of mine. Um, You know, we've just for the first time ever in the history of the United States of America have a woman on the president slash vice presidential ticket. Um, and elected and elected. And it's the first time uh, even though our country was started over 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at actual leadership roles, there are still few, you know way too few women. And um, I think the reasons behind that are, you know, complex, deep. Gen- there is gender discrimination uh there's all kinds of reasons behind that um, One of the things that we pay a lot of attention to at GPE is gender and girls education in our work and one of the things I'm I've been sort of making a stink about this for a while. Uh, one of the things that we've gone from is a gender equity strategy to a gender equality strategy and of course, Uh, The difference there is with equality, you look at the barriers that keep girls out of school. Uh, We've now hardwired gender throughout our work and our new strategy that was just approved uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we've now set up uh, a gender, special gender window uh, with a focus on girls' education. And the reason for all of that is that there are a, a pernicious set of factors that still keep girls out of school. Um, whether or not it's expectations of early childhood marriage, uh, gender-based violence, which is increased during the the pandemic, which we're very worried about, Uh, you know, societal expectations, uh, you know, poverty often leads families very uh, sadly to make a a very difficult choice to be able to educate only one child and they tend to pick the boy. Um, So it's, you know, we we need to open our eyes and realize that we still have a long way to go. Um, whether or not you're working, you're thinking about uh, developing countries, developed countries, all over the place, uh, to true gender equality, um, it's it's still a real, real challenge.
0: Yeah, I'd love to exp- delve into that a bit a bit more. Um, But first, I'd like to ask you, we've heard about your remarkable parents and the obvious influence that they would have had. But is there another individual that you would say has impacted your thinking in life? Well, it's
1: it's really the the teachers that I've had, and and there's a number of them. So there's there's three that I'll point to. one is was my French teacher in high school named uh, Madame Spittler, who really opened my eyes to language. And I still love language. And I love speaking French, however imperfectly. Um, then uh, my math teachers, I love numbers. Uh, and I love the precision of numbers and the sort of rationale and the order uh, of numbers. Um, Third was uh, one of my history teachers uh, at college uh, who really opened my eyes to all of the policy and history issues uh, surrounding um, the developed world versus the developing world. And that gave rise to my career choice that is still my career choice. Um, And uh, also really introduced me to a lot of the nuances of um, FDR's foreign policy choices and his insistence that uh, the colonies be the empires be dismantled because it was bad for the people living in the colonies. Um, so it was really, you know all of those influences um, have stuck with me and have also built with me um, a, a huge sense of curiosity. Um, you know one of the the questions you asked is what fav- what's one of your favorite object objects? Uh, well, being a big nerd, uh, one of them for me is my briefing books <laughs> because, uh, nothing makes me happier. And, you know, we're doing this in a different way at the moment, but getting a big pile of paper uh, about a country that I'm about to go visit uh, to learn about it. Um, and so my teachers left me with lifelong curiosity uh, and lifelong learning and a lifelong appetite to go see new things. Um, and, and always... Think about how, how they can be fixed. I'm also a big fixer, you know. What we can do better, we can do better. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, and I, I go back to the UK on this one. One of the things that I worked on when I was at Gavi uh, was a thing called the International Finance Facility for Immunization, which was a bond issuance program uh, that enabled us to um, basically accelerate the availability of financing to buy vaccines cheaper. Uh, which you can see, you know, we now know, all of us know much more about vaccines than we ever did. Uh, Being able to create um, a financial mechanism to accelerate the availability of vaccines and be able to pay for them and get them cheaper has obvious merit. Um, And so that was, you know, satisfied my curiosity if we can do it better, Um, and we did. And then we then issued billions and billions of dollars of debt, uh, which will all be paid back. not paid back by the countries, paid back by the donors, uh, to be able to buy vaccines more cheaply. Um, mm. So those are the kinds of influences that still stick with me. You know, numbers, order, structure, do it better, figure it out better, don't give up.
0: Your your career path is is quite interesting because you started off at Wall Street on Wall Street uh, in finance. And then you moved to Gavi, as you just mentioned, as its chief financial and investment officer. What impacted your um, that change into the world of development?
1: Well, I, I, I did start out in finance and I was very um, lucky to be able to do so. Uh, I loved numbers and uh, I also loved things international. Um, coming out of uh, college and things uh, to do with the developing world. So I chose to go into emerging markets finance at a fascinating time, late 80s, uh, where you saw the sovereign debt crisis in Latin America uh, that gave rise to a whole market that we called emerging markets. And I can talk a lot about what that means. Um, I then uh, turned my attention to what were the market impacts of the coming down of the Iron Curtain and all of a sudden markets in Eastern Europe uh, and uh, the ending of apartheid, uh, which opened up the world to then again doing business in South Africa. I spent between, let me get my dates straight, February, 1994 and uh, July, 1999, going to South Africa once a quarter um, to do business there and assess the sort of uh, risk environment there. Fascinating, fascinating uh, period of time uh, to be doing that. Um, And so I I really, during all that period, understand the role that capital played in development and helping all those different um, markets emerge and become free market economies and grow. Um, Learned a lot about that. Um, But then I decided I wanted to really, again, step up in the way of purpose and uh, I joined, um, I was shown the opportunity to become the first CFO of what was then almost a startup called, um, well, it was the Vaccine Fund, but it was part of Gavi. And uh, I built the financial team from scratch. Uh, we built, a, we did all kinds of things, You know, an investment policy that enabled us to buy vaccines. We did the IFM, we did another thing called the Advanced Market Commitment. All of that put Gavi on the map uh in terms like how you
0: just brush over the advanced market commitment which had huge implications as far as i'm i understand it um
1: yes and it's also the heart of kovacs which is now really important um and so what the uh you made
0: it sound so (laughs) so casual (laughs) but i mean that that has raised you know that's been able to raise um uh, i think m- from my understanding millions of dollars for vaccinations which has so had a huge impact on the reduction in child mortality it's it's quite incredible reading about that actually
1: well it was it was um it was a great experience and i'll never forget uh the chance to work on on both of those the ifm uh, and the amc mm-hmm. and learned a ton um it was a it was a hard but exciting day when the White House called me and said, "Would you like to come work for the Obama administration?" Uh, because I often described Gavi as my third child. Of course, GPE is my fourth child. So it's David, Daniel, Gavi, GPE, um, and uh, I knew I should go work for President Obama. But I I loved Gavi to pieces. But I knew that it was probably time to get on to the next adventure. Um, mm. So. I started working for President Obama uh, as the number two. I was the chief operating officer and executive vice president at the Export-Import Bank. I walked into the administration uh, when the financial sky was upon our head and falling. It was in the middle of the financial crisis. And the reason why I thought it was gonna be an interesting opportunity was because it was in the middle of the financial crisis. And uh, could I help uh, the agency play a role in the recovery? Uh, particularly through creating jobs, through greater exports, uh, and the answer was that's what we did. Uh, the balance sheet of the organization doubled from about a little over fifty billion dollars to about one hundred and twenty billion dollars over the uh, three and a half years or so that I was there, um, and we helped make a difference uh, in the recovery. Uh, one of the things uh, that I did, which I was very pleased to do, was I I got I sort of came to realize that small businesses and the little guy or the little gal were being shut out. And so I created a particular special $100 million loan facility specifically for small businesses to get cheap at and fast access to credit to start being able to export. Um, so that was um, uh, a small contribution to the effort. Um, but then GPE called and said, Uh, you know, would you like to apply to be our chief executive officer, you'll be the first chief executive officer. And the point is to come and take uh, this organization that had been uh, a smallish organization that needed some direction and some, uh, some getting to the next level. Uh, Would you like Mm. to do that? And um, from a policy perspective, it was sort of the other side of the coin of health. Um, In order for children to thrive and to become meaningful you know be able to have a chance for a future um they need to be educated and they need to be healthy uh and so i thought that the opportunity to uh help build an organization to the next level uh in the other critical policy area that goes along with health education i thought that would be an interesting opportunity yeah uh so i said yes um but i i Loved working for uh, President Obama. Um, the two things that stick with me so much about that time um, was his commitment to fairness. You know, he was so into everybody deserves a fair shot, mm-hmm. um, and huge commitment to ethics. And uh, it appealed to me so much, you know, because I'm an ethics nut. <laughs> um his just sort of threshold just expectation about ethics um so that's I really guys. interesting
0: yeah that's really interesting to hear from someone on the inside but that that really trickled down
1: that's oh yeah we mm. it it was it, it was clear and i i mm. i felt very at home uh in that environment i was like yeah Ra, let's go <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. matters
0: it has to come from a top down, I think, isn't it? It's for any organization, you have to have that clear clear culture. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, and, you know, it's something that I, you know, when I think about, you know, what really matters in a workplace, you know, you have to have fantastic people, but professionalism, ethics, transparency, hard work, uh, teamwork, you know, those are the things that um, are so important. And those are the things that, make my team at GPE such an unbelievable team is all that stuff is sort of it's there it's in front of us it's who we are.
0: Mm. And so in your current role with the Global Partnership of Education you have for, for the listeners who, who aren't familiar in GPE I think for nearly two decades has been delivering funds and is supporting solutions to build strong and resilient education systems around the world. And its vision is is a quality education for for everyone. And next year is particularly, or 2021 is a particularly important year because of the replenishment, which has been co-hosted by the UK and and Kenya. And I'd I'd love to hear more about, you know, your your hopes for that, but also perhaps your, your thoughts on the UK's role in this area, because girls' education in particular has been one of Boris Johnson's top priorities, uh, dating back to him being Foreign Secretary.
1: Yes, uh, and and thank you for for asking about that. Um, Just a quick word on on GPE, and for those who don't know what a replenishment is, you know, what is it? Um, So we are uh, the largest partnership and fund that is dedicated exclusively to education in the low-income countries. Uh, Our partnership includes... uh, over 60 countries, um, up to 87 are eligible. So we're in the process of applying for various things. So we expect the number of partner countries you know, continue to grow. Over 20 donors, uh, civil society organizations globally, the teachers unions, uh, three UN agencies, uh, private sector, private foundations. So we're sort of a, a partnership that brings together uh, everybody that has a role to play in improving education. Uh, we have deployed $7 billion uh, since we started, uh, and we are a grant maker. And um, that's important because countries have uh, little access to funds that are grant funds, meaning not repaid, uh, to help them reform their education uh, systems and how they deliver. Uh, when we say system, what we mean is all the pieces that come together to deliver education. So this is teachers, you know, administrators, data, buildings, curriculum. Uh, families, communities, it's all the different actors uh, that have a role. Uh, so every few years, uh, what we do is we look at our, uh, our evidence and our data and our strategy and we say, ask ourselves, how can we do this better? Uh, and that results in a strategy for the coming five years. We've just uh, finalized that process with what we now call GPE 2025. Uh, girls' education is at the heart of that strategy, and I can talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then, having concluded the strategy process, uh, we do what I call go-to-market, uh, which is go out and make a case uh, to all of the governments that uh, will fund us and uh, seek to raise funding. This time, we are looking to raise at least $5 billion U.S. billion for five years, uh, and we ask a government, two governments in this case, to lead it for us and lead means uh, really take on the political uh, leadership role in getting others to contribute money. Last time it was France and Senegal, this time it is the UK and Kenya. Uh, Because we are a partnership between uh, North and South, we bring together a G7 country. We want G7, we wanna be sort of top of the agenda Uh, and Kenya, which is uh, a very important partner for GPE. so the UK, uh, because you know, for many reasons, their role is absolutely vital. Uh, of course, they've got the G7 presidency coming up; that's a big deal. Uh, Boris Johnson has um, has indicated that girls' education is a top priority for him. Uh, we're delighted uh, about that as a policy choice. Uh, it, it dovetails very well with uh, who what we're about. Mm. Um, and, uh, we're delighted to get to work with the UK because they've got, um, such a incredible track record in leading replenishments, um, and working with others in this case, Kenya, uh, to do so. So their role is vital and, um, and their, their policy choices absolutely dovetail with ours right now. So we're excited, got a lot of work ahead of us, uh, but everyone's rolling up their sleeves and getting on with it.
0: And so, what are the? I mean, I, I'd love to know a bit more about um, your experiences of dealing with the donor countries, and you know, what what have you learned from that? Because, of course. Um, Macron uh, took a, a very uh, passionate stance on this agenda uh, last year. And I remember Unger as well, you know, that he really carried it through. Um, and of course, Canada is, is so big on this as well. Uh, I'd love to, you know, what, what are your takeaways from dealing with those countries? But also on the implementation side, you know, what are the challenges that you're facing with implementing girls' education? And what, what, what is, uh, you know, what, what do we need to overcome?
1: So on, on the donor side, um, and, and this is uh, one of the, the parts of the jo- my job that I, well, I enjoy every part of my job, but this is one part that really is sort of, you know, always absorbing, um, is that there's, a, there's sort of a three-stage argument that you have to make with any potential donor um, to a GPE or something like a GPE. Uh, and there's three questions that you have to make a case on. One is Uh, why should they care about international development? Uh, The second is within that, why should they care about education? And the third is why should they support GPE? Uh, So you're going from convincing on an argument about, why does international development matter? Uh, And then, okay, well, there's many different sectors to work on, what is it about education that matters so much? Actually, if you read the sustainable development goals, Ours is SDG4, but if you read the other 16 of them, everybody has to know how to read and write and do math in order to get the other bits and pieces of the other 16 done. Exactly. So yeah. education runs right through it. But then you have to really sharpen your business model about what is it that's so special about GPE? And we have an excellent uh, story to tell there. And I'll tell you about the implementation question in just a moment. Um, but what you need to do in, in talking about those three questions is really study what is going on in the uh, the political and policy world in the governments and also you know look at their engagement in the G7 and the G20 and in the UN and really try to strategize about how you're going to make the case uh, to all of the donors and new donors. And I spend a lot of my time uh, doing that. I have a Unbelievable team who uh, are experts at that, and uh, it's it's just a great it's it's a never-ending fun challenge uh, to do that, um, and uh, you know it, it just is never-ending and never changing. Um, and we've been, I think, uh, rather successful at working across governments um, in now many 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 countries uh, doing that. Mm. Um, in terms of the the implementation. Uh, Education is a big, complicated sector. Uh, It is very political in some ways. Uh, It's got deep implementation challenges. It is underfunded no matter where you turn. Um, There is not enough money, uh, and you have to really, really pay attention to uh, how do you get it funded better? How do you create efficiencies? Um, There's also a big sort of national interest dimension to it in the sense that countries want... And ought to have the sovereignty to make their own curriculum choices. So, what is our business model, and how do we deal with that? Um, we put countries in the center. Uh, we think about education systems as needing to function well, and helping give you know. So, what the GPE platform does is it gives it's assembled a big set of tools: money, know how, advocacy, uh, measurement, um, partnerships. It's assembled a big set of tools to help governments uh, make their systems better. Uh, So we're not just about a set of little projects here and there. We're about improving how education systems deliver over time uh, from the policy choices down to the implementation, down to the measurement. And to get a sense of, okay, what does that really mean? Um, Two very good examples to look at. Uh, who've been very successful, are Finland and South Korea. And both of them made choices, um, you know, uh, Korea after the Korean War, uh, Finland after World War II, that part of their recovery was going to be education. And they organized policy, financing, relationships with teachers' unions, um, curriculum choices, uh, sort of right the way through all the pieces of an education system, And they were going to lean into it. And now, after several decades, and education takes a while, um, now after several decades, they're both sort of top of the pops in terms of um, the quality of their education systems. And that's what uh, the countries that we work with aspire to. And um, we're beginning to see some real progress. Um, COVID has uh, turned some of that back, but we're going to still lean into it even further. because education is the answer to recovery. It is the answer to climate change. It is the answer to
0: turning around poverty. Um, I was just go going right to go right down the list. I was just going to ask you actually about climate change, because I find the relationship between the two really fascinating. And with COP coming up next year, I imagine this will be referenced a, a great deal. But would you be able to expand for the listeners a bit more about the relationship between climate change and, and education?
1: Sure um so it's it it's sort of a two-way or let's say multi-way uh relationship um you know on the one hand uh climate change is uh really changing you know economics uh it's changing livelihoods uh it's making it's certainly putting pressure on migration on poverty on you know job choices um so you know in doing all that it makes the choices around education more um, pressing. So, just to give you an example of that, um, Lake Chad, uh, which had been in the Sahel, which is of course one of the most um, uh, pressurized and challenged parts of the world, uh, Lake Chad has shrunk as a result of climate change by uh, by multiples of percent. Uh, it's drying up, sadly, and. Uh, Previously, it had been uh, the place where um, lots of villages, lots of people lived, and their livelihoods were fishing, and so as a result of climate change, uh, people are having to find different ways of earning a livelihood and having to move, Um, so you can see the impact the climate is having on educational choices, but then you can look at, you know, the sort of natural disaster aspect of it um, as well, Um, and so there's the impact that climate change is having on everything else. Uh, Education, thinking about the other way, uh, education is a way of fortifying uh, populations in the world to deal with a a world that is experiencing climate change. So this is new skills. Uh, It is new ways of thinking. It is uh, teaching people how to adapt uh, to a quickly changing world. Uh, So education is the answer uh, to climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, the girls' piece of it goes even further. Uh, if and there's all there's there's data around this, but one of the the uh, the things that we know is true, and it's even more true now with COVID, is that uh, girls get married very early, um, and there are millions and millions of girls that are getting married at you know 10, 12 years old, and then have many many children. And uh, if they stay in school longer, finish secondary school, maybe even go to high school, go to uh, to university, they will get married later, uh, and they will have fewer children, and uh, the sort of population footprint on the globe will go down, uh, and that's one of the um, one of the factors that uh, can improve climate improve the pressures around climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, So there's many, many ways where education and climate change are quite related. And we haven't even talked about nutrition, but that's another piece of it.
0: (laughs) And so we've discussed the individuals uh, who've had an impact on on your thinking. Um, What place and object, uh, and you touched on object already a little bit, but what place and object would you say um, uh, impacted your thinking?
1: So in terms of place, um, I often think about, Contrasts in places. Um, the contrast being when I uh, when I get on a plane, you know, or used to get on a plane, not doing it much at the moment, but uh, in Dulles Airport or JFK, and, and think about all around me, uh, and then I land in a country, and I then think about all around me, and uh, it's the differences that really make a profound uh, impression on me. Uh, But yet there are some things that are very similar. Um, When you walk into uh, a school and you see uh, teachers, uh, often I meet with um, groups of mothers or groups of grandmothers uh, who know that they want their their little ones to be in school. Um, Those are things that are universal. Uh, And I'm I'm often sort of struck by how universal that is. I'm often, you know, I was in uh, a refugee camp uh, in Cox's Bazaar where Rohingya children were. And, you know, one of the universal things was I saw little girls, I spent time with them, little girls um, sitting on grass mats on the floor singing. And they were so happy because they were singing and they were with friends. Uh, but then you also knew that's the, that's the sort of similarity part, but the difference part being that you knew the surroundings that they were in and the challenges that they were gonna face. Uh, so the place part is really what I would call the the distinction between uh, places where I am and places where I go. And that mm. always, always um, resonates with me. Mm. Uh, in terms of objects, um, it's, the, it's the gifts that I'm given because they are, first of all, they're always beautiful, but um, they, they come so much from the heart and from people who wanna say thank you. And, you know, I always think, well, I'm the one who ought to be thanking you uh, for giving me a chance to get to work on a topic that is um, as deeply held as education. Um, But they give the gifts to me and I always feel like I should be giving the gift to them. Um, So I cherish those gifts. Mm. And uh, two, Two, two gifts that I've gotten recently um, in the last few years. Uh, one is that I was given uh, a decoration, an award by President Saul, and then a couple years later by President Cabaret from Burkina Faso. And they were um, awards uh, for recognition of my work. And I have a little pin um, from one from President Saul and one from uh, President Cabaret um, that I wear whenever I'm there. And uh, it's there. Thanks to me, but I feel like the thanks really goes to them uh, to allow me the opportunity to work on these issues.
0: Mm. So, before COVID and the pandemic, uh, you must have traveled uh, a great deal. What are some of the most remarkable things that you've encountered in those travels?
1: Well, I I did travel. I traveled between uh, 90 and 120 days a year. um, And uh but you know yes all slightly exhausting but you know you'd never ever ever traded in for anything mm. um so one time I, I was in Ouagadougou uh in Burkina Faso and I met with some uh some high school girls uh at a high school there and uh they were telling me about uh the challenge that they faced in getting to school uh they had to ride their bikes know it was 10 12 kilometers each way they were a little nervous on the way uh, because of possibly uh, getting abducted Uh, but they wanted nothing more than to stay in school and uh, I just was so taken by their uh, their determination Um, another uh, another moment that I'll never forget was uh, I visited We financed a school in uh, Xemena in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, which is in sort of the Northern part of the country. And uh, I visited the school when they were starting to build the school. And I said, well, I'll come back when it's done. And I did, and uh, I landed and um, almost everybody in the village was lined up on the tarmac uh, to thank us uh, for building the school. And then there was a huge sort of ceremony when to go visit the school. And it, you know, practically brought tears to my eyes. Um I bet. They yeah. were so excited. Yeah. Um, so I I have visited school after school after school and seen, you know, remarkable teachers um and you know, kids. Um, another trip I'll never forget was uh, to Malawi. We went for three days and uh, started in Blantyre and drove up to Lilongwe and visited uh, with um, adolescent girls who were um, no longer able to go to school. They had, I think principally due to stigma, they had contracted AIDS. Of course, Malawi was one of the countries in the world that had some of the highest incidence of AIDS at the beginning of um, uh, the AIDS crisis. Uh, I'm fairly certain their moms and dads probably had died of AIDS. So they were orphans. Uh, They were, had their only choice was to become sex workers, but all they wanted to do was go back to school, but they couldn't. And, you know, heartbreaking. And we met with them over and over again. Um, Hmm. So what, what sticks with me so much is meeting with kids who want to go to school girls who wanna to go to school, uh, but for whatever reason can't. And um, yeah, so th- those are the memories that I will always cherish, not only because they're such courageous people, but it's a reminder of why, so why are we doing this? It's because of them, it's to help them out.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, Hey, that's, that's very powerful, very powerful indeed. And as a final question, Become one of my sort of uh, staple questions on top of the other <laughs> three. But what is the best piece of advice you you've received, or you know, what advice would you pass on? My
1: goodness, um,
0: your final uh, piece of wisdom. <laughs> uh,
1: well, I think that the more that you realize how much you don't know, uh, it it sharpens the mind. As soon as you start assuming that you know things. You get into a bad place. It's better to start from a place of you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then start asking, and my my team knows this, start asking why and why and why and start start chipping away at conventional wisdoms. And that's when you start being able to solve problems. So start by realizing you 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 know a lot less than you don't know and then start asking why, and then start reading, and then start looking at numbers, and then start thinking and figuring things out. But assume you don't know
0: much to start with. That's very good. And it shows very, I think very um, perfectly why you're the perfect role model for the Global Partnership for Education as well. (laughs) Well, You're very kind, thank you. I'm a pretty lucky. Um, Well, thank you for everything you're doing and and thank you so much for coming on. What were you thinking?
1: Well, thank you, Laura. And uh, we are really counting on the UK and all of our friends in the UK uh, to help us. uh, And of course, all of our friends in Kenya as well uh, to help us make this replenishment a successful one. Um, We are living obviously in uh, difficult economic times. Uh, but it is because of how important education is to uh, our recovery and to our future, that now is exactly the right time to roll up our sleeves and uh, make this uh, a real success. And uh, with all the hard work that I know is gonna be necessary, uh, I am very optimistic that it will be a big success. And uh, I have very high ambitions and high expectations and high hopes for where this goes. Um, So huge thanks to all of our friends in the UK
0: and Kenya. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Alice. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I find Alice very inspiring and love the work that she and GPE are doing in education around the world. As promised, I've got some wonderful guests lined up, including Caroline Lucas, Richard Bennion and Baroness Jenkin. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet me at Laura Round and use the hashtag what were you thinking or email me at podcast at bigtent.org.uk. And of course, don't forget to become a friend of a big tent if you aren't already. You can use the code podcast for some brilliant discounts.